Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the forgiveness and the transformation that you bring through Christ and his cross. And so we pray now that through the word of your gospel, you would be helping us to turn away from sin in our lives and to live redeemed lives that glorify you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in many Western countries, tolerance has become the supreme virtue of society. Society embraces and promotes all kinds of sins, abortion and sexual immorality and materialism and so on. But there's one sin in society that absolutely must be rejected, and that is intolerance. Not accepting someone for who they are, telling them that they're living wrongly and that they need to change. Uh, in particular, tolerance is expected with regard to someone's sexuality. Uh, increasingly, people have begun to define themselves by their, uh, by their sexuality. They'll say things like, I was born this way, or this is who I am, or I have to be true to myself, and so on. And so then to deny someone's self-determined identity is the ultimate offense. And so tolerance is the ultimate virtue. Now, our world is in the midst of a sexual revolution that has been progressing at a frightening pace over the decades. It began many years ago with the normalization of sex outside of marriage. Uh, then adultery and divorce became uh, gradually more acceptable. Uh, marriage became more about personal preference than commitment. Uh, so, you know, I'll marry you as long as I love you and then I'll move on. Uh, then emerged the internet and pornography, normalizing more extreme uh, sexual behaviors, uh, celebrated now in, in, in Netflix or movies like uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. It's pretty hard, I think, to watch any TV series these days without finding something that's promoting LGBT. Uh, so then it has progressed to acceptance of homosexuality, uh, legalization of same-sex marriage, uh, and now the latest issue with the first transgender athlete performing at the Olympic Games uh, uh, last year. And who knows where the revolution's going to end in the years ahead? You know, will polygamy be the next step? Or will the legal age of marriage be changed? Or, or who knows where it's all headed? Now, of course, those are not issues that are just overseas in the West. Right? But they're increasingly issues here in Malaysia too. The issues in the West inevitably come here. And so even in Malaysia, we've seen that issues of homosexuality and transgenderism, they've been increasingly on the news in this nation too. And, and of course, Christians struggle with remaining sexually pure themselves and with feelings of same-sex attraction. So our passage uh, this morning speaks powerfully against that culture and that virtue of tolerance. See, we're not simply to tolerate any sexual behavior. We must deal with sin in our lives. We must glorify God with our bodies. Well, let's just remind ourselves of the context we saw in chapter 1. The Corinthian church is a gifted church, but uh, they've been enriched with the grace of God, but they're also a church that's full of lots of problems. And remember, Paul had got this report back from Chloe's people, and in chapters 1 to 6, he's dealing with various issues raised uh, that she has mentioned 
Uh, and so in chapters 1 to 4, it's mainly been about divisions in the church and spiritual pride. They're all lining up under their favorite teachers based on their eloquence and power of speech. The church is, is arrogant, embracing worldly wisdom instead of the wisdom of the cross. But now in chapters 5 to 6, Paul turns to some of the serious scandals that have broken out in this church, uh, including incest, lawsuits, and prostitution. And Paul intends to shame this church that claims to be so spiritual and yet is devoid of holiness. So in point one this morning, immorality in the church, immorality in the church. And Paul mentions the scandal there in verse one. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's Wife. So Paul, of course, is shocked that there is a man in the congregation who is sleeping with his stepmother. Now, of course, incest like that is forbidden by God. We could just look at Deuteronomy 27, verse 20. It says very clearly, Cursed be anyone who lies with his father's wife, because he's uncovered his father's nakedness, and all the people shall say Amen. But you don't need the Old Testament to tell you such an act is wrong, do you? Even in the pagan world of that time, it was an outrageous act. First century Corinth was a very free society. Almost any sex in Corinth was permitted and celebrated. So much so that for the Jews, Corinth was considered the epitome of moral depravity. But even in pagan Corinth, this sin was utterly scandalous and not something that could be tolerated. But not only had the Corinthian church had someone in their church who had committed this sin, to make matters worse, the congregation, it seems, was actually proud of it. Verse 2, he says, And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? They're proud of this happening in their church. Perhaps they boast that they are so tolerant and accepting. Perhaps they boast in God's grace that, you know, God can forgive anything. Perhaps they're boasting about their freedom in Christ that allows them to live however they want. But whatever their reasoning is, their, their boasting shows just how far this church has gone astray. Because a church that really was spiritual would mourn over a moral failure like this, not celebrate it. Now notice here Paul's focus is, is not fully on the man himself who's done this, but on especially on the church's response to it, that they have allowed it. So Paul demands swift and radical action in verse 2. He says, Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So even though Paul is not there in person, he's in no doubt about what they need to do. That is, he needs to be removed from their public gathering. Someone who's committing such a public sin can't be welcomed into the church as a brother. That's what he's saying. Verse 3, uh, For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit, and as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did this thing. And Paul, the case is so serious, it's so, so well known that Paul doesn't need to, to, to go there and consider the evidence before he gives his verdict. It's so serious, that action can't wait. They need to, to, to make an immediate response to this. And since it's a public sin, Paul demands a public response from the congregation, that is, expulsion from the congregation. So he says in verse 4, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan 
for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So they're talking about expelling him from the congregation. But what, what does it mean that they're going to hand him over to Satan? That doesn't sound like a nice thing, does it? Now, it basically means that they're expelling him from their fellowship, right? They're thrusting him back into the world, which is under the domain of Satan. And so they're going to treat him as though he's a, he's a non-Christian who's in Satan's grip. But the purpose here is, is not cruel, right? It's not that the church is consigning him to hell. It's not that they're allowing him no path of return, Right? The purpose of the expulsion is simply to show the severity of the sin, right? that if he's living like this, he's not one of them. He's not really a Christian, and he needs to repent. And so the goal of this, this severe discipline is actually restoration, right? that he will be moved to repentance and, and ultimately to salvation. That's what it means that he'll be uh, handed over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, right? His, his sinful desires would be destroyed so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord, so that he'll again turn to, to the Lord Jesus and live with him as king uh, and so be saved from, uh, from the ultimate judgment when Jesus returns. So in verses 6 to 8, Paul gives his reason for such a drastic response, and that is this, sin spreads sin spreads. So he reprimands them again for their boasting. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Right? They're so proud of their knowledge and their spirituality, but Paul's reminding them how little they really know. Verse 6, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Now, I'm not much of a baker myself, right? but I am I'm told that during COVID, it's been a big craze that everyone now wants to bake their own, uh, their own bread. Uh, when you're baking bread, I'm told, you need to add yeast, right? And it spreads through the loaf and it, and it makes the loaf rise, yeah? And so Paul's point is this. A little bit of something affects everything. A little bit of something affects everything. Just like a little bit of yeast will make the loaf rise. And so the, the existence of this scandal is not a minor incident. It's not a, a small matter that can just be pushed to the side, that it, it, it won't hurt anyone, it's just a private incident. No, he's saying that left alone, this will actually corrupt the entire congregation. And so they'll need to take steps to free their congregation from sin. Verse 7, he says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are, unleavened. Right? So just like unleavened bread has no yeast, right? like uh, you know, Roti Chennai or something like that, so they are to be a church without sin. And to make this point, Paul takes them back again to the gospel. He says in verse 7, For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Remember during the Exodus, uh, all the plagues God sent on the Egyptians to redeem them out of Egypt. The last plague was the, the death of the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb was to be killed and its blood was to be painted on the doorpost and lintel of the houses so that when the angel of death came through the land to kill the first, every firstborn uh, in Egypt, it would see the blood and it would pass over. And, and so the, the Passover lamb would die instead of their firstborn child. And so they would be redeemed out of Egypt. And Paul is saying that this, 
this Passover is, is pointing forward to an ultimate Passover that Jesus brings. That Jesus is the Passover lamb who, who dies instead of us, who, who takes the punishment we deserve. And of course, we, re we remember that when we have the Lord's Supper. Jesus is sharing a Passover meal with his disciples. And he doesn't say, and as he says, uh, you know, take, take and eat this. This is my body. Drink this. This is my blood. He's not saying, oh, remember what happened back in Egypt. But he's now saying, remember my death, the ultimate Passover, as the ultimate Passover lamb. But he also reminds us here that the Passover had a festival attached to it, and that is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so he continues in verse 8, Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so he's saying, just as the, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread came together, so salvation and holy living come together as one package. Right? So if Christ has died on the cross as our Passover lamb, redeeming us from our sins, then we should respond by celebrating the festival of unleavened bread, you know, not by having some special you know, ceremony in church and where we all come and eat roti chanai together. That, that, that's not what he means here. But we celebrate it by living holy lives. Lives free of malice and evil, lives full of sincerity and truth. As a side point, it's a reminder that we're not under the Old Testament law. We're not here to, uh, you know, reproduce all the ceremonies and the festivals of the Old Testament. They're, they're pointing forward to Christ and the gospel. So the point is this. Once we come to trust in the death of Christ, there ought to be a sharp contrast between our old way of life and our new life in Christ. Salvation should lead to holiness. The true Christian will get rid of the sin of their past life and live a transformed life for the Lord Jesus. And so what this means is that the Corinthians, and indeed us, we need to guard our holiness by purging evil from our midst before it, it, it spreads further. Uh, I liken this to, to tooth decay, if you like. I've recently had some cavities filled, and I'm still reminded of this. You know, if a, if a decay has made a, a cavity in your tooth, then the only way to fix it is to drill away all the decayed tooth so that only the healthy tooth remains. Because if any of the decay is left behind, then it will continue to, to, to grow and destroy your tooth. And so he's saying here, look, if there's this decay that's growing in the congregation, the only way to fix it is to remove it. And so in verses 9 to 13, Paul wants to clarify what he means here, though. Uh, and he's referring to a, a previous letter that he's written to them. We don't have this letter in the New Testament. We've, uh, it reminds us 1 Corinthians is not the first letter that he's, uh, he, he's written to the Corinthians. We think actually maybe he wrote four letters to them, and we've only got two of them. But this is, he wants to clarify what he previously wrote in verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. So when Paul is saying here, look, don't associate with sexually immoral people, he's not, he doesn't have non-Christians in mind here. Christians don't cut themselves off the world and from the world and, and, and live in monasteries and, and never interact with non-Christians. 
Now, otherwise, how would we ever be able to share the gospel with anyone? He's talking here about how we relate to unrepentant Christians, those who claim to be brothers and sisters, but are living in unrepentant sin. So he clarifies in verse 11, But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexually immoral immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So the person who calls himself a Christian, him or her, and yet their lives speak otherwise, we're told they are to be separated from the community of God's people. Right? Not to be accepted, not to be ignored, not to be swept under the carpet as though nothing happened, but disciplined. And Paul uses pretty strong language in verse 13, doesn't he? He says, purge the evil person from among you. Now that, that command, as you'll see, it's a quotation from the Old Testament. Uh, it occurs many times in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy, when it says, purge the evil person from among you, what it has in mind is actually capital punishment in that, in that context. Now, that's not what he means here. He's not saying, you know, kill, kill the Christian who's behaving badly. The evil person is to be purged, though, by being cast out of the congregation. Fellowship is to be cut off so that you won't even eat with them. You won't even welcome them into your home. And, and, and so the severity of the discipline shows the gravity of the situation. See, God's people cannot live in unrepentant sin and allow it to fester in their midst. It must be purged or it will spread like a cancer until the whole church is destroyed. If the church sees someone living in public unrepentant sin and it refuses to take any action to call them to repentance, no discipline, then it just opens the door for others to do the same. Because ultimately it says, sin doesn't matter. We can do what we want, and God doesn't care. Now sadly, we've seen exactly this kind of disregard for sexual sin in many parts of the global church. I'm a part of the Anglican church, and globally more and more dioceses have allowed practicing homosexuals to lead churches, uh, to become bishops, uh, to bless same-sex marriages in churches in direct contradiction to the word of God. They're actually preparing right now for a, uh, in our global, uh, a meeting in Australia of all the Anglican church to discuss this, this very issue. Now, in many cases, uh, those churches would pr proudly label themselves as progressives, maybe like the Corinthians were. Now, others that want to be faithful to the word of God They've rightly broken fellowship with those deviant churches. They refuse to, to share the Lord's Supper with them. They refuse to attend conferences together with such people and, and these kinds of things. But this is not just something that happens at a, you know, a denominational level out there. This is something that the local church also needs to deal with. If there's someone here today right, who's living in unrepentant sin, uh, unrepentant adult, adultery, or they're sleeping with someone that they're not married to, or they're stealing money from the church, or whatever the sin is. Right? It's a serious matter. 
Uh, and it does show that whatever is professed on the outside, there's not real faith in the inside. The church needs to protect its holiness by confronting the person, calling them to repentance. And if they refuse to repent, cutting off fellowship to show that it's really serious. Now, it may be painful. It may be very difficult. And indeed, you may be slandered by lots of people as a result. But the church's holiness and witness is at stake. Well, in chapter 6, Paul now turns to the central issue related to this immorality, which is not just their pride, but their failure to exercise judgment. Now, the immediate topic, of course, in chapter 6 is uh, the topic of lawsuits, and uh, the sudden change of topic may surprise us uh, at first, but it's not accidental and it's not unrelated. Uh, we see in verses uh, 9 to 20 that Paul immediately returns again to the topic of sexual immorality. It's not that he's you know, suddenly uh, forgotten what he was talking about for a moment. Uh, and frequently we see this kind of sandwich structure in the book of 1 Corinthians with the, with the bread on the outside, the, the actual issue that he's addressing, and then another topic in the middle which, which is related and key but at first seems quite different. And so in chapters 1 to 4 we have divisions, chapter 1, then the nature of true wisdom, chapter 2, then divisions, chapters 3 and 4. Here, sexual immorality, lawsuits, sexual immorality. Chapter 7, marriage, stay as you are called, back to marriage. Chapter 8 to 10, food sacrifice to idols, surrender your rights, food sacrifice to idols. Chapters 4 to 14, spiritual gifts, the nature of love, chapter 13, back to spiritual gifts in verse 14. See, each time, it's the thing in the middle, it's the meat in the middle of the sandwich, which helps us to get at the real central issue right, that's related to this, this topic. And so we've seen already the key issue behind their divisions was their adoption of worldly wisdom. We'll see later the key issue with their eating food sacrificed to idols was their insistence on their own rights. We'll see that the issue with their spiritual gifts was their lack of love for one another and so on. And so the key issue lying behind this sexual immorality in the church is their refusal to exercise proper judgment. Now, Paul's already alluded to that in chapter 5, verse 12. He says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? He's saying that the church has a responsibility to be judging its members, to be sorting out the sin in its midst. And it's very clear the Corinthian church has failed monumentally in that task. Now, I think the, the topic of, uh, of judgment is a particularly touchy possible that right now you're not very happy about what I've been saying so far. Uh, we might remember Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7. He says this, Judge not that you, may, you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eyes? Uh, but that, that passage there, in that passage, Jesus is not saying that there is no place at all for evaluating the life of another Christian, or for church discipline, or for rebuke or correction. There's lots of passages in the New Testament that talk about rebuke and correction. What he's warning about here is, is judgmentalism and hypocrisy on a personal level. 
when you forget that you yourself are a sinner and you're so focused on other, other sins that you don't even address your own. So Jesus is talking there about sins on a personal level, not so much about church discipline like we have here. And so if we are to deal with sin in the church, we must understand that Christians can and must judge sin. And we can't claim Matthew, 5, Matthew 7 as an excuse why we shouldn't. Uh, and so in verses 1 to 4, Paul tells us the incredible truth, one that the Corinthians should have already known, that in the age to come, Christians are going to be involved in the judgment of the world. Even the judgment of angels. It's quite remarkable. Look at verse two, chapter 6, verse 2. It says, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? He's saying Christians should be able to deal with the sin in their midst. We should be able to call one another to repentance and receive one another in forgiveness. But the Corinthian church was just not able to do that. They refused to judge sin. And that was obvious because not only were they proudly ignoring this case of gross sexual immorality in the church, but at the same time they were taking one another to court in civil lawsuits. It says in verse 1, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Now, I've been in enough churches to know that conflict is a sad reality uh, in many churches. Christians, we're meant to be united in the same family, but all too often we're not. Churches have bitter conflicts, churches split and so on. And, and it's especially sad when you see Christians threatening lawsuits. And I've seen this. You know, threatening to charge someone with defamation or to threaten litigation if a public apology is not offered uh, and other terms met. I think such kind of legal threats show major deficiencies in, someone's in a person's character. But they can also betray a, a, a much wider failing in the church as well that's unable to help those involved in the conflict to, to sort it out. And that's what he's getting at here in verse 4. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Now, we need to be careful how we apply this here. He's not, we're not meant to take this out of uh, context to mean that Christians can never be involved in the legal system uh, or that we can never bring matters to the police and so on. No, if a, if a crime uh, occurs, right, like, like, like this child sexual abuse in the church or something like that, it would be totally wrong for the church to say, look, we'll sort it out internally. There's been lots of examples of that in the news. They say, no, well, we'll, we'll, we'll sort it out. We won't report it to the police. Now, when a crime is committed, those who've committed it should be reported to the police and there should be punishment along those lines. What Paul is talking about here is not so much about crimes like those, but, but conflicts or, or disputes between Christians. And he's saying Christians should be able to resolve their disputes internally without having to go 
before a court. So verse 7, he continues, To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. We are to love our brothers and sisters sacrificially, not to wrong them. And going to court only makes things worse, doesn't it? When one Christian goes to court against another Christian, no one wins, do they? The, the reputation of the whole church is damaged at that point. And then rather than being a witness to the world, we just drag Christ's name through the mud. Paul's point here is that we must learn to deal with sin in our midst. We must learn to judge unrepentant sinners. We must learn to practice church discipline. Christians are meant to be able to sort out sin in their midst because when they fail to do so, the consequences will be great and it will drag God's name through the mud. Well, Paul closes this section with two important convictions for dealing with sin. And the first one is that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Look at verse 9. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, notice Paul doesn't only list sexual sins here. There's idolatry, greed, theft, drunkenness. He includes revilers, that's those who destroy another's reputation with untrue words. Or swindlers, uh, those who steal through deception, I guess we will call them scammers. Uh, all those things are on the list as well. And it's clearly not meant to be an exhaustive list. He could certainly go on if he wanted to. But Paul puts it in the strongest terms, doesn't he? Do not be deceived. If you engage in these activities and you refuse to repent of them, you're not trying to change, you don't want to change, don't be deceived. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. You might call yourself a Christian, you might go to a church, you might have been baptized, you might serve in a, in a ministry, you might have a leadership position, but don't be fooled, don't be deceived. If you're living in unrepentant sin, you're not a Christian, and if Jesus returned today, you'd not be in his kingdom. You'd face his judgment. That's what he's saying here. It doesn't matter if you're a bishop, you're a pastor, you're an elder, you're a deacon, or whatever you are. Right? If you're living in unrepentant sin, you're not a Christian. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now that's what he's saying here, but it's important that we also are clear on what he's not saying because some of us have particularly tender consciences, I think. Paul is not talking here about the Christian who is struggling with sins. Like we, we all sin every day. Like I sin every day. I struggle with sin. The struggle is a good sign. There's a difference between struggling against sin and living in unrepentant sin. See, the, the person who's struggling with sin, they want to change. They're trying to change. When they fail, they repent. They, they ask for forgiveness and so on. When they fail again, they repent again, and they ask for forgiveness again, and they try again and again and again. The unrepentant sinner doesn't care. The unrepentant sinner says, sees no problem. They just do it anyway. 
So we must pause and, and ask here, is there any unrepentant sin in my life? Is there anything in my life that I say, Jesus cannot touch this area? I'm not willing to change this thing. Are you engaged in sexual sin in some way? Sleeping with a boyfriend or girlfriend you're not married to. I've been a pastor a long time. I know this happens. Having an affair. Christians do that. Watching pornography. The statistics tell me most people here are either presently struggling or have done in the past. Are you engaged in greed? Drunkenness? Do you steal? I mean, I, I, I know of people who steal from the church offertory, for example. I don't know about this church, but in other churches. Do you download illegal movies, photocopy textbooks, as if it doesn't matter? This passage is saying you need to stop. You need to, you need to repent of that behavior. Turn to Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And if you hear these warnings this morning and you say, no, I'm not changing. I'm not repenting. I don't care. Don't be deceived. You're not a Christian. You're living for yourself. That thing that you won't give up, that's your idol. That's your God, not Jesus. You must repent. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. So that's the first principle. And the second one is this. Understand, we can be forgiven of every sin. We can be forgiven of every sin. See, those sins we all just, we just talked about will only exclude you from the kingdom of God if you won't repent of them. But for the Christian who does repent of them, who turns to the Lord Jesus, there's a radical change. There's full forgiveness. Look at verse 11. He says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I'm very aware that as we went through those lists of sins, some of us have committed some of those sins in our life. And, uh, you know, as I say these things, it brings back all the memories, all the guilt, and so on. No, for certain, those who turn to Christ are fully forgiven. There is no sin that cannot be forgiven. He says we, we can be washed. All our guilt taken away. Washed clean. Dealt with at the cross. We can be sanctified. That means made holy, right? Spotless, blameless, set apart for God's holy use. We can be justified. That means declared righteous before God. Fully accepted. Totally forgiven. And, and so if, if you have skeletons in the closet this morning, and some of us do, know that if you've turned to the Lord Jesus, it's forgiven. You don't have to you know, keep being weighed down with guilt and burden about it for your whole life. It's been dealt with at the cross. Please know this morning as we go, go through this passage, I'm not here to kind of wag the finger and say, I'm better than thou. Right? We're all failures. I have my own personal failures. I won't uh, air them out this morning. We've all done and said things that we deeply regret, that we're deeply ashamed of, and that includes me. 
And, and perhaps sometimes as we look back on our past sins, we wonder, could God ever really forgive me? I mean, how God, could God forgive me when I've done that sin? And certainly I sometimes think that. But if we're worried that God could never forgive us, that he'd never accept us, then please be assured by this passage, you can be. Right? If you turn to the Lord Jesus in repentance and faith, you're washed, you're sanctified, and you're justified. You're forgiven, you're cleansed, you're holy, you're blameless, you're righteous in God's sight. And that is the glorious good news of the gospel. And, and praise God that it seems to be what has happened in the case of the Corinthian church. We actually learn in 2 Corinthians what happens in this matter. That the Corinthian church did take action, the sinner did repent, and he was restored to the church. Look at what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 5 to 8. He says, Now if anyone has caused pain, he's caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. It's, it's a beautiful passage, isn't it? As urgently and seriously as he calls the church to discipline the sinner in 1 Corinthians 5, he now urges and begs the church to forgive, comfort, and, and, and love this repentant sinner, to welcome him back, to ease his pain, to assure him of their love. It's a wonderful picture of the gospel, isn't it? And one that we mustn't ever forget. Restoration is always the goal of church discipline. And we must be concerned with love and forgiveness in the church just as much as we're concerned with holiness and purity. Well, let's conclude. We've seen today it's crucial that we take sin seriously. We've seen that the church must be willing to judge sin and sort out disputes. We've seen that unrepentant sin leads to God's judgment. And if it's not dealt with, it will spread like cancer in the church. We've seen that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so decisive action is required. Loving correction that seeks full restoration. And we've seen God's wonderful offer of forgiveness for all who will turn from their sin to the Lord Jesus. We can be washed, sanctified, justified, accepted by God, and restored to loving fellowship with each other. So uh, let me urge us this morning then not to let sin fester, either in our lives personally uh, or in the church here. In response to the gospel, let's deal with our sin in love and with grace. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you this morning for this, this painful word difficult warning uh, that we need to take sin seriously in our lives. 
Lord, where we see sin in our own life, especially sexual sin, help us to change. Help us to repent. Where we see conflicts or disputes, help us to reconcile. Because we do want to be your people who enter your kingdom. And Lord, we want to thank you also this morning for the wonderful forgiveness and cleansing that's available to us as we turn to the Lord Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that no matter what we've done, we can be your holy people and have the hope of inheriting your kingdom. So remind us of that gospel this morning. Change us and transform us. For your glory we pray. Amen. Thank you.